Welcome friends, James Corbett here in a conversation that is being recorded on the 6th of February 2020. And for once, for once, I don't have to explain to a befuddled guest that I'm on the other side of the dateline. So yes, it is the one day ahead of what you think it is. No, because I am joined by someone on my side of the dateline, specifically Joe Nova, who you will know from, at the very least, our previous conversation, although it's been quite a few years since that previous conversation, so I will put the link to that in the show notes for this conversation in case you want to go back and revisit that conversation. Did I say conversation four times in that sentence? Maybe. Uh, at any rate, today we're going to be talking to Joe Nova of joannova.com.au, and uh, you can go and see, uh, read her about page for all of the bona fides of her career in broadcasting and journalism and print and and online and uh, winner of blog awards and other such things. Um, but I won't embarrass her by reading that entire biography out here on air. Let's just say, Joe, uh, Joe Nova, thank you very much for joining us today. It's good to be here, James. And we do have a lot to talk about with the bushfires. Exactly right. Yes, yes. Today we're going to be t- addressing the 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 one of the major stories of 2020 at least uh, the first few weeks of 2020 the australian bushfires which as everyone around the world knows a horrendous horrific situation that we are told of course by the usual outlets and the usual people was is another sign yet more proof of climate change here it is and you're looking this is what climate change looks like right well, maybe not. And in fact, uh, as as I'm sure anyone who's familiar with your work will know, but uh, for people who aren't, I will include links to some of your articles on this. For example, climate change is the excuse to hide an inferno of incompetence. Heads must roll for the billion-dollar bushfire mistakes. And 57 bushfire inquiries isn't enough. We need one more for leaders to hide behind. Uh, I, I think those those titles of those articles give some flavor of your uh, coverage of this, but let's let's inform people about what is really happening there. It, it has. It's been an absolute scandal here in Australia. We are a continent of smoke, as James Cook called us when he came out in 1770, so Europeans saw smoke all over Australia. It was the way the Indigenous people managed the land. Well, what we've done is utter neglect, and we've let the bush grow, the scrub grow, the fuel loads are the key issue here, not climate change. So what they don't tell you when they say, oh, we're going to get hot or dry weather, is that we're not going to get hot or dry weather. The, uh, the central tenant of the theory of man-made global warming is actually a hotter, wetter world. And where are all the climate scientists who should be jumping up and down and pointing out when all the fire chiefs get it wrong? And the answer is we never hear from them. Well, well, you should know so, by now that it, global warming, yeah. of course, isn't global warming. It's climate change or climate weirding or climate emergency or climate something or other. And that means hotter sometimes and cooler sometimes and rainier sometimes and drier sometimes and more fires and less fires, more hurricanes, less hurricanes, more snow, less snow, and every other th- possible thing that can happen, right? Well, absolutely. More normal and less normal. And there's nothing you could name that isn't associated with climate change. And, I mean, it's such a vague term anyway. We all know they picked it up because of its ambiguity. It's hard to deny climate change because you look like someone who denies there are ice ages and no one denies that. So the whole thing becomes a name-calling pogrom with no scientific definition or definition in English that makes sense. But that is what they do, isn't it, in so many topics, distort the language. They take out tools for having a reasonable discussion 
And by making them ambiguous and blurry, it becomes hard to even discuss the topic, which is where we're at in the public debate. So, yes, our media has been full like yours of, oh, this is climate change and these bushfires and, oh, isn't it awful? Well, you know, where were they last year? And the answer is it's drought. And drought is the largest driver of climate of bushfires in Australia. And when we look at the scientific evidence on that, 178 years of our rain records show this is according to the climate scientists who are called climate expert modellers. According to them, it published only last year, 178 years of our rainfall records show no trend in droughts. So climate change isn't causing more droughts compared to what we were getting in 1850. So this, for starters, it falls over in theory and it falls over in fact. And in rainfall in Australia, that's what matters. And we may well get floods coming soon because that's what happens in Australia. First you get drought, then you get floods. And that will be climate change too, right? Well, of course, yes. Of course. So it's handy, isn't it? I mean, this is like Neolithic witchcraft and this is what pagan witch doctors used to do 5,000 years ago. Oh, I will stop the storms. Give me your money. Well, in that case, give me your conch shells or give me your dried meat or your jerky or whatever it was that the witch doctor wanted. And I will stop the storms and hold back the tide. Well, now they just wear lab coats and what's the difference? So, you know, scientifically, we've been looking for evidence that climate change, that man-made CO2 is linked to climate change. You can't find it in Australian droughts. Australian droughts are linked to the ENSO patterns, the the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. And uh, as you would know, when the El Ninos happen, it's uh, wet for California, but dry for the east coast of Australia. And in this case, we've had one of the most extreme Indian Ocean uh, dipoles, meaning a, a particular current in the Indian Ocean, which is often associated with really bad bushfires in New South Wales. So I don't know if that uh, throws out enough of the um, – the because I could go on and on, but uh, I think fuel loads is something we need to discuss. And I know Californians are familiar with the term uh, – well, maybe they're not, but it's certainly with eucalypts and the incredible fuel loads that we get with eucalypt forest. Yeah. So I'm not sure, James, well, if you're aware of the debate in California about the eucalypts there. I'm not, actually. Uh, well, they're, they're contentious. These beautiful blue gums in California, and they are enormous, stately trees. They're gorgeous, and I love them. But they drop tons of bark and the bark rolls up into kind of cinnamon coils it stacks itself in layers which is beautifully aerated it's exactly the right conditions for creating a pyroconvective cloud firestorm so this is what we're getting with these fires in australia we're getting pyroconvective storms which means the fire is actually changing the weather this is not just an intense fire a highly intense fire is described as one that's three mega megawatts per meter on the fire line. So that's 3,000 watts of energy per meter on the fire line. But these fires are getting up to 70 megawatts of energy per meter. So we're talking 20 times the level of energy that we would call a high intensity fire. So when we do controlled burns, these are cool burns or prescribed burns, we're looking for creating fires in winter for us because that's the wetter season in the south. 
we need fires in winter which are around a half a megawatt to three megawatts. And we don't want them bigger than that because we can't control them. There are no water bombers that can put out fires once you get them much bigger than that. And so a 70 megawatt fire is a catastrophe, which we should be doing everything to avoid because those fires are totally unstoppable. They, they generate winds that pull over these big trees that cause embers to strike two kilometres ahead of the fire line. I mean, there's no way we can, once these get going, no way we can put them out. So it seems to me the only thing we can control in a fire is the fuel load. We can't control the wind and we can't control the temperature, which is slightly important but not very. But the fuel loads make the difference between a devastating catastrophe that kills all the animals in its path and destroys the trees and forests and kills hundreds of year old trees that would normally survive a cool burn. And so what we're doing is just utter vandalism of these forests and it's entirely our own fault. And what we need to do is simply manage that land better. Presumably, this knowledge has been around for some time, because this is not a new phenomenon. This is something that's been going on for a very long time. So the question then is, why has there not been the political will or the knowledge to do that take these types of basic precautions to prevent this from happening? Well, I guess one, fires are great propaganda for those who want to put in carbon credits. And of course, remembering the people who benefit the most from carbon trading schemes are the uh, large financial institutions, the, the Goldman Sachs, the JP Morgans, the Barclays Bank, the Deutsche Bank, all of those that would benefit from having a $7 billion international trading scheme. There's huge money involved in other areas, you know, in fossil fuels, for example. The gas and oil industry is actually quite like the, um, the carbon legislation. It works for them because it pushes down their main competitor, which is coal. So all of the theories you hear out there about fossil fuels this and fossil fuels that, they don't, they're, they're very inaccurate because fossil fuels is really three or four different, entirely different industries. And it makes a big difference which industry we're talking about. Coal certainly does worse in a world where we put legislation in to prevent CO2 emissions. But coal is so much cheaper than gas when it comes to producing electricity that, you know, in Australia, we could produce electricity with brown coal, and we have 300 years of reserves of brown coal here, it, for $30 a megawatt hour here, compared to gas, which is more like 60, 50 or 60. So we're talking twice the price. So gas loves it, you know, it, it ramps up and down when there's um, wind and solar. So the wind and solar blows and comes in and the sun shines, the gas stations aren't as quick as adapting to the changes in uh, supply, so we need more gas. So, yeah, I mean, there's very much an interest for the gas-powered groups in the oil industry, which is usually gas explorers, to promote this. Just look at Shell Petroleum, just look at BP Beyond Petroleum, and both of them have lobbied for carbon credits and carbon trading and things like that. So... You know, it, the, the, the real truth of this matter is far more complex than the bumper sticker messages, and I think that's what stopped the political debate. Our media keeps repeating these bumper sticker, hot means fires, and, you know, inane things like that. I mean, and speaking of which, Death Valley, not too many fires in Death Valley, yeah? So yeah. All, that, <laughs> all that heat, the heat is not what causes the, um, the fires. The, the heat makes it slightly worse. But the, the problem is the fuel load. If you don't have the fuel, like Death Valley doesn't, 
you don't get bad fires. And that's what we found here. The worst fires in Australia are in that southwest corner where we have, I believe, second tallest trees or they're amongst the tallest in the world, the, the Victorian mountain ash, enormous, beautiful trees. And, it, yeah, yes, it's an absolute scandal that we've treated them with neglect. And, of course, the, the greens and others don't want us doing cool burns because the smoke can hurt the little birds and, and it's bad for the critters on the ground doing these cool burns. And besides, smoke is not good for asthmatics. And so there are lots of reasons to make it harder to do cool burns. And, of course, the very real risk that it's, even in winter, sometimes these burns do cause damage to get out of control. It's a cost-benefit thing. Absolutely. So there are, I mean, uh, political trade-offs, and one could understand why politicians would uh, perhaps shy away from the controlled burns for various reasons and then end up with this sort of situation. And hey, as you say, ka-ching, ka-ching, it benefits all of those pushing the uh, the green climate change scam in a number of different ways. Let's just underline one of the points that you made there. In fact, on a recent post, you, you noted that on average, bushfires burn an amazing 50 million hectares every year in Australia. And it's interesting to look at the amount of, uh, of bushfires that, and, and the, the percentage of um, a bush that is burned in the north versus the southeast and what that tells us about Australia um, and, and generally how uh, this, this plays out. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Australia, of course, is as big in land area as the um, mainland United States. So we're talking about very different climates in the south, and, and our far north is much closer to the equator than Florida. So up there, we get fires every single year. And across the top end, as we call it, the Western Australia, Northern Territory, we get thousands, of, sorry, millions of hectares of fires every single year. Now, the big problem this year was not in those areas because those areas are, are well fuel managed, I guess. The fuel can't build up for too long. They're also dry and arid areas often. So although some of them are wet tropics right up the far north, but what we're seeing are the worst fires here are in areas where we haven't done fuel reduction. They haven't done the burns in the bottom corner they're only on a rotation now of, at best, I think, 5% burning each year, which is one in 20 years. Some of them are one in 100 years. So that's 100 years of fuel, tonnes of fuel being uh, left on the forest floor. We wouldn't leave barrels of oil out for arsonists to come along and chuck a match in, and yet we leave all this litter on the forest floor and all these shrubs, this undergrowth, and there's a few reasons behind that. And one of them is the the people not liking the the prescribed burns, but also there's this uh, tree change where people want to live amongst the trees. Yeah, let's just build our house amongst these enormous forests. It looks great until the fire comes and no one can defend it. So that's an issue here as well. And you see a lot of these burnt out shots of houses, and the trees are right up next to the house, and it's just it's a tragedy waiting to happen in Australia. And so, yes, we, I think we've burnt 20 million hectares of, fire, of area this fire season, which is uh, below average, but no doubt we'll count the satellites and it'll come in about average or possibly more this year. But what really matters is that fuel load in that bottom corner. That's where these fires have been unusual, unprecedented, the sheer heat. We, we've dumped leaves on New Zealand, apparently, and ash, because these are stratospheric pyrocumulus clouds, the energy driving these is so big, it's lifted up, burning leaves into the air and dropped them right across the ocean in New Zealand. So it gives you some idea of the forces involved. It, there's no water bomber. 
that can take these down. I've heard it said water bombers are theatre for the masses. In other words, they help us feel like we're doing something. Yeah, that, I mean, that's incredible. In New Zealand, that's that's almost unimaginable. Yeah. So that gives us a sense of the scope of the problem. So the question is ultimately about the solution. If you were made dictator of Australia tomorrow, what would be your three-step plan or whatever it is, one, two, three, to, to deal with this and make sure that it does not happen in this way in the future? Well, at least the fire risk is going to be reduced in Australia for the next few years, thanks to Mother Nature's version of, of prescribed burning. But we don't want to repeat that. So we need to instigate prescribed burning again at a level which is probably one in 10, so that no more than 10 years goes by without an area getting a cool burn. And these cool burns are very different. We're talking of, you know, one megawatt fires, a 70th of the strength of these. It uh, the koalas just climb to the top of the trees. It gets smoky up there, but they survive. The trees themselves are designed to re-sprout, both from the roots and from under the bark. So after a fire goes through, they can just pop new leaves out. And with a fire that's cool, it won't destroy the canopy, so it won't cut down all of those uh, leaves that are shading the forest floor. So um, we need that immediately that. But also to allow people to graze animals in these forests is useful because you know, it, reducing the hazard is not just about going in there and burning. It's about allowing people to selectively log. It's about letting uh, animals come in and, and graze the grass and the bushes and things on the forest floor. And we've been stopping all of those in the last 20 years too with this idea that nature is just left alone ignoring that Aboriginal people managed the land here. You know, it's, it's, it's a real put down actually on the Indigenous people to suggest that they did nothing and didn't manage these forests so actively. Um, and yet the same people who say we should adore them and listen to everything they say are the ones ignoring what they did for thousands of years which was burn, burn, burn. And apparently they lit fly fires frivolously all the time and even in summer, and they could afford to do so because they never let the fuel load get so high. Lessons, so there are lessons, uh, lessons there learned. So this ago. is this is really the question. Then, how far away is the discussion that we're having here about prescribed burns and what needs to be done from the p discussion that's taking place in Australia right now? How likely is this to to be done? Going well, the, the great news is, I mean, we had enormous fires here in 1994. We had enormous fires in 2003. We had them again in 2009, killing hundreds of people in Victoria. We did it in 2013. We're here again. So you can see we get big fires. And at least this time, for the first time, I've seen discussion of fuel loads uh, and prescribed burns, hazard reduction. So things are different this time. Um, I'm sorry that overseas all you're hearing is the climate change message. But I would estimate that some of our major news outlets here are finally talking about fuel loads and it, it half of the political spectrum has got onto it. They say land management now. So that's really encouraging to me that things have moved forward, mainly because the other side of the debate has been milking this, exploiting this for the climate change propaganda angle. Paradoxically, that may have pushed the you know conservative half of the debate into looking for a solution and coming up with and being able to I guess research the issue enough to say fuel management. So yeah, I'm encouraged that we're getting somewhere on this at the moment, and that Scott Morrison, our prime minister, is talking about land management. Um, you know, we have massive climate action that we don't need 
we've installed more renewables per capita in the last two years than anywhere in the world, three times as much as in the US per capita in terms of watts. So we're nuts when it comes to wind and solar. And that obviously didn't stop these fires. So as I keep saying, how many solar panels does it take to stop a pyroconvective storm? 70 megawatt storm, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, absolutely incredible. Well, um, well, it is good to hear that that conversation is at least taking place and being broached now. Um, although, yes, it certainly is not making its way into the international media, which is concentrating on the climate change side of this. So it is good to see that that's br- at least broaching the public consciousness there in Australia. But people around the world are concerned, obviously, by the horrific things that uh, the images that have come out of there for people who do, who are compelled to try to offer some sort of aid, some sort of help to um, what are the people in southeastern Australia? What would you recommend? Uh, oh, well, yeah, I mean, there are lots of GoFundMes and uh, private donations. Um, I, I would be much more tempted to donate direct to people who need it rather than the institutions, which is a sad statement, but I guess I've lost faith in most of the long-term institutions and their ability to deliver it where it needs. As you've probably seen in the US, so many charities end up their biggest donor becomes government agencies, so they end up repeating the government mantra and supporting the same groupthink. So I prefer to donate to the small uh, independent ones to try and help people. And you know what? We still have a lot of forests. We have beautiful beaches. We have a great reef. Come down to Australia. Use this as your excuse for a holiday you always wanted and come and visit us because our tourism industry really needs the help and there is still so much good thing, good things to see and places to be and the stories that you're hearing in seeing and the images you're seeing are not all of Australia. We've had stories of people cancelling their visits to Western Australia, for example. We're 3,000 kilometres, 4,000 kilometres away from where those fires were. And we've had a very normal, ordinary fire season here, and yet people are cancelling their holidays. So our tourism sector is really suffering. And that like when I lived in Alberta cancel. in Canada and people would be coming to visit. Oh, I'm going to Toronto. Will you be around? That's uh, kind of the other side of the country. I, <laughs> I don't think you realize how far away that is. Yeah, I understand. Yes, well, there, there that are is... Legends. <laughs> yeah, legends here of people getting in cabs in Sydney and saying, I need to get to Nedlands, and, and the cab driver saying, but that that's in Perth. You realise that <laughs> thousand cabs. So, yeah. Expensive cab ride, yeah. All right. Well, uh, I, I certainly do share your distrust of the, the major institutions and their ability to provide aid in these situations. It is good if you have personal connections and can personally donate to people who are in need. And what better way to find those connections and make them than by actually going and visiting the area? And in fact, yes, I have never been to Australia myself, which is almost inexcusable at this point because I have lots of friends from there. I have always wanted to visit there. I'm on at least this side of the world. I should visit there. So uh, yeah, the thank you for the kick in the butt that I need to make the plans to go and actually visit Australia. But and I think and we'll can leave- I just say that the reef is really beautiful. And you know, I'm hearing reports from Jennifer Marahasi, who's diving up there at the moment, of fantastic views. And that has been so obvious, oversold, this damage to the reef. So book your trip. There's no rush because the reef's going to be there for thousands of years. But it's beautiful. You might as well go now while there's not so many tourists. It is the best time. I'm sure you can get some discounts. Well, all right. Well, let's keep this in mind. Uh, I think we're going to leave today's conversation there. But as I say, I'll put links to all the articles we talked about and to your site in general so people can check out your ongoing coverage of this and other related environmental issues and others. Uh, Thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you, James.